This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Krista Tippett. Krista Tippett is a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author. In 2014, she received the National Humanities Medal at the White House for thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence. On the air and in print, Krista Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity, and inviting people of every background to join her conversation about faith, ethics, and moral wisdom. She's the host of the award-winning public radio conversation and podcast, On Being, which opens up the animating questions at the center of human life. She's also the author of the recent book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Krista and I spoke about journalism as a healing art and the difference between being mission-driven and driven by an agenda. We talked about how change happens at the margins and how those whose identities are not on the line have a responsibility to accompany that change. We talked about the magnetic call of virtue and how hope is a virtue that is not to be confused with optimism, and how Krista engages the muscular quality of hope on a daily basis. We talked about Krista's discovery of yoga at an important time in her life, and finally how science and spirituality come together for her as faith in the unfolding mystery. Here's my conversation with someone who is so gifted herself at the art of conversation, Krista Tippett. Krista, I'd love to start by speaking a little bit interviewer to interviewer, if that's okay. Yes. To begin with, I know you teach a class and it has to do with the art of conversation. And you talk about asking better questions. So I thought this would be a good place for us to start, and it might improve the questions that are to come. What does it mean to ask a better question, to ask what you call them generous questions? Yeah. So I, so I, I, that class is, um, is something that Acumen put together. Um, but you know, so I'm, I'm saying I don't think of myself as a teacher in that kind of um, traditional way, but I actually, I, I think I realize it is, it is kind of what I do in a sense. I, that's something I've learned, um, and I think that what, thinking about, I feel like the that uh, asking good questions and listening; these are kind of basic social arts, um, basic tools for both both private and individual and and communal life but um 
a lot of the things we have actually learned, even in our formal spaces where we get taught, um, dictate against us being good listeners and formulating that better question. So what I mean by that, I, and, 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 I, and I do want to be positive about it, but I, I think it's important first to point at um, all the what I would call bad questioning that we do see around us, you know, questions that, well, first of all, I think, you know, I grew up, I think, experiencing listening as being quiet while the other person said what they had to say. And there wasn't really any curiosity in that moment. So one one absolutely fundamental quality of a good question is is the intentionality behind it, is that it has true curiosity behind it, that you want to know you want to understand and you're willing to be surprised and if you can if we can create spaces trustworthy spaces and trustworthy encounters where that is really what we are telegraphing not just in the words we speak and the question we formulate but how we are present um i think we can, we will surprise each other much more than we think is possible um so that that's 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 how I'd I'd start to talk about it. A, a, a better question can be very simple, you know. It can be just the the simple question of of what someone means when they use that word. Um, and for example, it can be a really loaded word that that culturally, when somebody uses that word, we think we know what they are all about, <laughs> and so we're ready to have the debate, which is the mode we go into, rather than seeking understanding. Now, you mentioned how listening is more than being quiet and, and yeah. you know, waiting for your turn to speak. So what's yeah. happening for you when you're listening, if you were to track what's going on inside of you? How do you listen? Um, I, well, I think that good listening starts even before words begin to be spoken, even before we speak the question. It starts with the invitation we create, the way we create the invitation, the space we create. Um, you know, if it's not trustworthy, if people think they've been brought in to be set up or to be, if if people feel like they're on the defensive um, or they have to explain themselves, um then then no matter how uh good my questions are you know i'm i'm i haven't i haven't i haven't established a space in which i can be a good listener or really draw them out in a meaningful way so so it starts with the invitation it starts with the the setting um uh and then i am aware that i'm not um just there listening with um, engaging with my words you know, with my question, but I'm present with um, with with myself as a human being, as a complicated human being, and um, just an awareness of that, right? An attention to that, um, a mindfulness about that. Uh, it, it still means I'm in there with all of my whatever preconceived notions. You know, I might have unconsciously, however much I think I may be in control of them. But but as you know, I mean. It, Mindfulness doesn't necessarily erase those things, but it allows us to they, we put them in their proper place. Right? We're aware that they're in the room. So, so, so that's one thing. I'm I'm trying to be there as a as a full human being, um, and I'm trying to be there with my curiosity. And again, I think this intention uh, that is really so countercultural, especially now in our culture to be willing to be surprised even by somebody who 
who I know from the outset of the conversation that we have we are profoundly different from each other, right? But can I can I with all, with everything I can muster bring try to bring call myself to the best of my humanity? And can I expect and desire and create a space where the other person can bring the best of their humanity? And can we can we try to meet each other there? Now, you mentioned, Krista, that you don't think of yourself as a teacher, that this course was put together by a group called yeah, Acumen yeah. for the People. And I'm wondering, do you relate to the term journalist? Are you a journalist? And the reason I, I'm asking that is, mm-hmm. as you're talking about making it safe for somebody else to speak and bringing out the best in the person you're talking to, those aren't what I necessarily associate with at least some journalists who are detached. They're not bringing their full complicated humanity. They're stepping back. They're trying to portray, you know, a 360-degree view of the situation. So how do you connect to that term? And if you are a journalist, is this a new kind of journalism or a different kind of journalism? Yeah, I I do connect to the word journalism. I kind of stubbornly uh, insist on connecting what I do to the work of journalism. You know, my my project is now as much a podcast as it is a radio show, but it's but our my foundation is is, is public radio. Um and my beginning was as a print journalist, you know, very very standard traditional breaking news journalism. Um and that training was so important. That training and asking the fierce questions and and attending to what's happening and double checking, you know, what I thought I was seeing. Um, I, I've actually thought about this a lot, Tammy, and I, you know, I've, I've, I've looked at the definition and, you know, I, I, I think of journalism as the work of telling the story of our time. Um, I actually think that, I think that one of the things our time desperately needs is for us to, um, to, to, I don't, yeah, I don't want to say create a new narrative, but to tell the stories about ourselves and about our potential, um, about the quiet, redemptive healing places that are among us, um, as much as the destruction and violence is among us, to tell the, a fuller story of our time which includes our capacity for goodness and for change and for growth. So that's what I think I'm doing, right? I'm trying to I'm not I'm not telling an um another story. I'm 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 trying to to inhabit the fullness of our story. I mean, talking about goodness and redemption and change also means asking fierce questions and it means questioning ourselves. Um but I think um, and it means asking challenging questions and 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 reflecting in a challenging way. But you know, to your point, there's a very narrow definition in traditional journalism that we see all around us about what a challenging question is, and it tends to be a a question that inflames or embarrasses or puts somebody on the defensive. Um, and that's not. You know, to me, a challenging question is driving to the heart of the matter. A challenging question is uh, getting somebody who, who is who is helping shape this narrative of who we really are and who we can be, um, to go that much, to be that much deeper and more revealing and more searching about 
the questions they hold as well as the answers they've arrived at. I, I, I once had a conversation years ago that's been really formative for me with another journalist about, you know, could journalism be a healing art? And that I think, um, in fact, that is a, an approach that a lot of people have when they go into this profession. And I, um, it's, it's, it's certainly in, um, the larger motivation I've always had. And, and it almost sounds nonsensical in our, in our journalistic culture now, but I kind of want to insist on holding that and thinking that can be possible. Cause it, cause journalism needs to be good for us. And right now there's so much about it that is just, paralyzing and demoralizing us. You know, in reading your book, Krista, beautifully written and carefully crafted book, Becoming Wise, what I felt was, oh my gosh, and I I don't think I really knew this just from listening to some of your interviews, Krista Tippett really cares with her whole (laughs) heart about making the world a better place, about human growth and evolution. And what I thought about that, that's the core, I think, of why, this is my own view here, about why you're so good at what you do and why you've captured the hearts and minds and attention of so many listeners. But I think that kind of deep caring isn't necessarily associated with the profession of journalism. And what I hear you saying is that separating those two things is anathema to you and that you want to redeem journalism as a profession of caring. So I think that's incredibly interesting. Yeah, and you know, it's probably true that, as I said before, uh, the foundational platform of this project was public radio. And so there is a sense in which I I have a journalistic persona, right, as the host of On Being on public radio. And, and I think that's right and appropriate and um, you know, or at least it's fitting. Um, but you're also right that I am, you know, it's one thing about journalism is that you, you can't, I, I don't feel like I have an agenda and that's where people, that's where people go critically or skeptically if they hear about a journalist who cares that you have an agenda that is coloring your work. Um, but I am mission driven and I, um i i think that you know having a media platform to put conversations and ideas and to elevate voices you know out there in the world is a huge responsibility and um and a huge and it creates huge possibility there's there's power in that and and so yes i i do i do care and and somehow i somehow i create a boundary there between that and having an agenda and <laughs> I haven't thought about this, but I'm, I actually appreciate the question. Yeah, and I'm still trying to understand. So this is genuine curiosity, but what's the difference between a mission and an agenda? So, so one thing I think that is actually very compatible with you know with the, with the whole world of mindfulness and all the intelligence that um, that this is bringing to us collectively is. To me, it's about the intentionality behind what I do rather than about controlling the outcomes. Um, I, I do think that, and, and this, there's a lot of this in the world. I think journalists who, and journal and media platforms that are about um, aiming towards an outcome, um, that's, da- that's dangerous territory, and that, that gets into the realm of what is manipulative. But... Um, if I say that my intention is to shine a light, 
to create a space where voices of grace and goodness and uh, wisdom can be heard and internalized and used by other people, you know, I think that's more in the realm of like me um, using a platform responsibly and but also understanding that it, you know, it's a, it, 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 it is a gift. It's a, it's a gift, but I'm not, I'm not in charge of what people do with that, but I do think that deserves to be heard. Okay. I want to ask you a question about something that you write at the very beginning of Becoming Wise. And I'll I'll read the quote, and then we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. You write, The book is a collection of pointers that treat the margins as seriously as the noisy center. For change has always happened in the margins across human history, and it's happening there now. Seismic shifts in common life, as in geographic reality, begin in the spaces and cracks. First of all, I think our listeners can get a sense of what a beautiful writer you are from that quote. But also, I'd love to know this idea that change happens from the margins. Tell me what gives you confidence that that's actually how change happens. Well, you know, one thing that I appreciate about a spiritual and religious perspective is that it takes a long view of time. And I have to say, and I also interview across the years, I've interviewed many elders, you know, many people who are wise and have had a long life in this world. And, and this theme of change happening in the margins, um, by people who had seen it over a span of time, and also people who studied history and who, you know, had a large understanding of humanity and where it's been and how change ha- how social change happens. This, I have heard this refrain over and over again from people I trust, from people who know. Um, change happens in the margins. It starts in the margins. You know, what starts in the headlines is not what changes us. And the irony is that what in this journalism that you and I have been talking about, the journalism that is everywhere, that is so noisy, uh, the dominant journalism, um, what gets all the attention is what is is this very tiny sliver of often the most destructive of of what we are of which we are capable. Um, the irony is that people who are just going about changing, enriching, uh, softening the world that they can see and touch in ways that is rippling through lives and communities are quiet. They they have a they 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 all you know always have some quality of humility. So they are the last people who are throwing themselves in front of cameras or microphones, and the last people to be sought out by cameras and microphones. Um, it's you know what I'm interested in is that is that long view and and the human change that makes social change possible and if you talk to people about how how moral change happens how change that all of us well all of us I <laughs> that's a, that's a fraught language but change that I think we eventually societally see as good whether it's about um and and in in our time that has a lot to do with embracing different kinds of difference and difference that in fact only a generation ago was not only seen to be 
uh, strange but morally wrong and reprehensible, right? I mean, we can talk about race, we can talk about gender and sexual sexual orientation. Um, and what I've learned from people who study this and who are incited is that those, you know, the the, the moment comes when the laws are overturned, when the structures change, but that is seeded by generations of of quiet change, of, of people who change their lives, of people who change their loves, of people who 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 risk everything, um, but who but who find their way and who who are seen in wider circles of kind of unlikely relationship and. Um, and so that that's what I'm interested in. It's very hard to pay attention to that or even imagine it being possible when we're captive to the news cycle. Um, but that I do I do believe in this and I'm attending to that, but it does not have um, you know, instant gratification attached to it. Although actually it does because, you know, whenever any of us becomes attentive to beauty and goodness in the world, even in the midst of the, you know, the chaos and turmoil of the moment right now, you know, in those moments, we we are we are changed, we are we are we are uplifted, and that matters. And we need to take, you know, we talk about the data points, right? We need to take those moments of momentary transformation as data points and treat them as real, as real as the moments when we despair about the future of humanity. Now, let's say somebody's listening, Krista, and they feel, you know, I'm at the margins and I feel marginalized. Yeah. I don't feel humble and like focusing on beauty. I feel marginalized and angry and yeah. change happens from the margins. You know, I'm not sure I believe yeah. it. I'm not sure I believe yeah. that. I just feel mad about being not part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and anger is a moral response and that's also how it happens. Um, I think what, for me, one of the implications of change happening at the margins, um, is that those of us whose identities are not on the line, those of us who don't quite inhabit that margin, but see, but see something real and important happening there, have a responsibility to accompany that change. And, um, you know, to put our identities and, and sometimes our bodies between those whose very identity is threatened and assaulted. Um, I, I kind of think this is something you see happening now very slowly and fitfully with the racial discussion. I don't even discussion. I don't even think we have a conversation about race, you know. But like, like we, but we, we, we kind of have a longing. We kind of have an understanding that we don't even know how to do it, which is in itself a step forward. Um, so more and more people joining, uh, what is gathering at the margins, which is real, which needs protecting, which needs nourishing. Okay, I'm gonna ask a follow up here, which is also a quote from you that I think will get at really what I'm trying to get at. Okay. So here's the quote. This is in an interview with you where you said, we have to take back ownership of our public life and we have to start having the conversations we want to be hearing and not expecting the quote unquote media to deliver it and not expect the politicians to necessarily be the grown-ups in the room. So, right. you know, what I'm getting at is how do people take back ownership 
of our public life, especially if somehow we feel disempowered, marginalized? How do we take back ownership of our public life? So I don't want to diminish how hard this is and that in places it feels impossible and in places it may be in the moment impossible. I don't want to diminish that. But I feel that we are so captive, we are so riveted by um, the the narrative and the the loudest voices that um, – the loud and privileged, you know, you can, and there are all media voices in the media are privileged in all kinds of different ways, but they are privileged, right? Um, we, we, we sometimes are, are letting ourselves understand reality to be defined by those loud and, and often hateful voices. Like we think they do define our world and we can stand in that place of despair while not acknowledging the reality of people and communities right around us in our vicinity who are taking a different stance, who are wanting to live a different way, who are creating a different reality. We sometimes, we undervalue um, the, 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 the more transformative realities that, you know, that, that, that are possible right around us. So part of this, I'm saying, is a shift in attention and in uh, in what we take in as powerful. You know, uh, there's a line in there from John Powell, who's somebody who I really had a great conversation with him about kind of reframing uh, the the question of race to the question of belonging. Like, how would that change how we approach this? And he has this great line. He says, uh, you know, we think hate is powerful and anger is powerful and we wield those things in public life because in fact they do they they do get results um but we think love is wimpy and that is an illusion uh but for it to for it to become more powerful and more practical we just starting with you know myself and you and people who are listening and people in communities wherever they are have to claim that power and 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 delve into that power and and figure out how to manifest that in a different way to the rest of the world mm-hmm. now in becoming wise you write again, in the beginning of the book, that the connective tissue that runs throughout the entire book is the language of, a surprising word here, Krista, virtue. The language of virtue. I felt really (laughs) surprised by it. It's Uh, a word that I love. I love virtue. And I think a lot uh about bringing virtue into business, which can seem contradictory to people. But it's really important to me. But then you said something about virtue that you believe that this is now a magnetic word, especially for young people. people. And I thought, is that true? Is virtue a magnetic word or is it seen as this old dusty kind of thing that we have to, you know, try to revivify from the religious traditions? Yeah, well, so what I have found is that people um, over 50 um, think of it as a dusty word that they left behind. And, that, and, I, and so I think, I think people of certain generations, and I'd say especially Catholics, <laughs> are often really allergic to the language of virtue. Um, 
because people who 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 got a lot of the language of virtue when they were growing up, and it was, I mean, these were things that people were hitting you over the heads with. You know, it was essentially it was about what you were falling short of. Um, my experience is that younger people, and I'm sure this is not universally true, but but my experience is that younger people that this is a new, fresh word um, to a lot of younger people who are not growing up. You know, so many people in the emerging generations are not growing up with with uh, any kind of traditional religious formation. Um, uh, and you're right; that's mostly where this language has been used. Um, but even to the extent that it's been used in political life, I think that is that is another era. So it's new language, and it makes sense. It makes a kind of logical sense um, to. To, p- to people in this generation who I experience to be very committed to joining inner life with outer presence in the world, and that virtues are kind of these, you know, these are these tools that help you pin aspiration to action because they're practices, you know, um, they're practices. They they join intention and 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 presence. Now we've picked up on virtue and virtue as a word, and one of the themes that runs through becoming wise is your love of certain words. And you know, I notice with the word virtue, I feel this immediate love for the word. Mm. Like you know, I don't know, like I want to put it on a piece of paper between my two palms and just sit yeah. with it and be like. And I'd like to just hear a little bit about how loving words feels to Krista Tippett. What's that feel like? <laughs> Uh, so sometimes people say to me, oh, you must have grown up in a family where people loved words and were great listeners. And, but I'm the other, I'm the opposite story, right? Like that's, I, you know, that's one way we, we become the way we are. The other way we become the way we are is we grew up in the absence of something. And so, and I'm, I'm that person. There, there, there was not a love of language or words or reading or listening, um, in the world of my childhood and my family. And it's so it's something I discovered um, in young adulthood. And, it, you know, it was this great discovery, the the beauty of language, the power of language, you know, um, the, the joy and the power of taking care with our words. And I don't know, the uh, I, I'm not even now somebody who reads a lot of poetry in any kind of formal sense, but I have noticed um, when that when we put poets on the air, which we do more and more and more, there's something in that kind of winsome, uh, uh, you know, graceful use of language, careful use of language that that we 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 realize we need that it makes us richer um and it's not just that it's beautiful it, it helps us think differently it helps us shift our imagination you know it's it's shifting words but it's shifting imagination and so and you know the the backdrop to me starting this show which originally was called Speaking of Faith. I mean, the show, I feel like the show has kind of evolved along with our cultural encounter of this part of life. But, but the backdrop to that was a, was a, was a, the 1990s and this toxic religious posturing and language, um, in American life, um, that did a lot of damage. And we're, you know, we're still living with the consequences of that. Um, 
And then my discovery through this project I did with some Benedictines um, of a whole different way of talking about these things and opening them up through 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 language and through stories and through better questions. Um, and there was always beauty in the language and there was always humor in the conversations. <laughs> and those are two of my, you know, big virtues, the big virtues I see that can redeem us. Um, so, yeah, so it's just been this thing I walked into and it continues to delight. I'm still curious to know when you hit a word or a phrase that you absolutely love, what mm. that feels like inside you. Meaning if I said to somebody, you know, you love listening to music or you love... Yeah. Your partner, what does that feel like? They could describe it for me from the inside. And so mm -hmm. that's what I'm curious about because I think we don't necessarily know what it feels like to love words in a broad way in our culture. A lot of people don't even, yeah. you know, attend. I mean, there's this phrase of the ancient rabbis, you know, that words make worlds. And I think that that, that gets at how it feels in me when... Um, when a word or a constellation of words, um, I experience it to have a, a to have a power to to kind of expand reality. You know, like it didn't necessarily make something true that wasn't true before, but the words have been able to point at that truth to give it some contours that I can feel. And and so you know, literally, the world is bigger. And there are possibilities that weren't there before. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in talking about virtues, this theme that runs throughout Becoming Wise, you talk about hope, hope as one of the virtues that you want to explore. And the last section of the book is dedicated to hope. You write about hope. It's a very beautiful section. And you write that hope, like every virtue, is a choice that becomes a habit that becomes spiritual muscle memory. I thought this was a great sentence. And talk a little bit about hope you differentiate it from optimism. And I think that could be yes. curious for people. Yes. So so one of the fascinating things about virtues in general is that essentially what we're learning through neuroscience is validating that, you know, what you know, what we practice we become and that, that even something like being patient or kind or compassionate, um, or hopeful, you know, or attending to beauty, um, that that these that don't necessarily have to be things that you know, I, you know, I was born, you know, she was born a happy person, right? you know, that you know that that we we practice these things and we we become them, and it goes for virtues as much as, as, much as it goes for skills, um, and 
Yeah, I yeah, to me I I I love I do love the word hope. It's one of these words I love. It rolls around in me and it makes the world feel bigger and it makes life feel more possible. Um the word optimism, which is to me it's kind of it's you know, what is that Buddhist language of the near enemies? I think optimism is a near enemy to hope. Um <laughs> because it um to me it's about wishing you know it's it's about um it's about kind of pinning your 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 hopes in a in a superficial way on on you know that you know that that you know you you're kind of wishing in that direction and then hopefully it will happen and and to me yeah hope is a is a choice it's a courageous choice um it works with reality it works with the complexity of reality to me hope is reality based it sees the darkness it sees the struggle um and it 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 it, it uses an and but a but it 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 chooses to um also see um the good that is possible the 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 fullest um the fullest picture um the, you know the fullest narrative, and to inhabit that and to live that. So, Krista, I'm curious. You wake up one day, and it's a day when you don't feel particularly yeah. filled with hope. How do you engage that hope habit, if you will? How do you do that? Yeah. yeah well, I have. Though I've had quite a few of those days lately, honestly. Um, <laughs> Um, both on a personal level and just with everything that's happening in the world right now. Um, uh, so it, it's, you know, I interviewed um, Brother David Stendhal Rost at the end of last year, mm-hmm. and he says this thing about gratitude. He says, you know, it would be ridiculous, it would be absurd to say that we should be grateful for everything. And I, you know, by the same token, I, it would be absurd um, and unreasonable to say that we should be hopeful about everything. But he said you can, in you can be grateful in every moment. And um, and I, I, I think I, I feel that way about hope. It's not, um, and this is where I think it's more resilient than optimism. It's, it's not necessarily a feeling. Um, I, my my overwhelming feeling on waking up in the morning sometimes um uh it may be despair but I choose to to take this muscular thing called hope out into the world with me and continue to work with it um and that means that I keep putting that and at the end of my despair rather than a but and I decide what it means to live into that I decide what it means to to take as seriously the good um, as I'm taking in uh, what is what is absolutely you know <laughs> lot, lot terrible, and there's a lot of that. Now you use this word muscular. That hope has this muscular quality. Tell me more about that. I guess what I'm trying to do is counteract the idea that's out there and that in earlier parts of my life I had that something like love, something like hope is kind of, you know, to use John Powell's word, wimpy. 
um, in order to to live something like hope and love in a muscular way communally, I think there's work that we have to do communally to reframe, to put a lot of connotations and experiences around um, what hope and love can look like in public. Um, we It's hard to do that now. It's wimpy because we've watered down the word and we haven't attached it to a lot of, um, you know, to me, muscular is, you know, is powerful. It, 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 it pushes things forward. It has an effect. Um, and so there's work to do in demonstrating something called hope that is muscular. Um, I mean, that has an effect you can see, that has a power you can see. But, I mean, I do think that, 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 um, I think that I think that's I think that there is an effect and there is power. I think what we're worse what we're worse at is pointing at that and calling it, you know, a muscular hope and calling it a muscular love. Now, in this section on hope, you write about how you've been influenced by Tilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit yeah. paleontologist, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that, how his writings have influenced you, and particularly in terms of this muscular hope function. Yeah. Yeah, so so again, I, I, I mentioned a, a minute ago that having a long view of time is very refreshing and nourishing and absolutely critical. We have such a, uh, Americans especially, we have, we have this ridiculous view that, you know, you should, of, of instantaneous gratification and we leap to action and, and, and we think things should show results right away and we're always measuring results and, and that's, you know, so, you know what Teilhard de Chardin is a great uh a, a great is a great person to kind of sh- shake you into a, a whole new way of thinking because his his view of time was was geological um you know he was at the beginning of the last century looking at human fossil remains uh the fossil remains that were finally uh, demonstrating to humanity that you know this the span of time in which we had evolved, and he was looking at how primitive um, these these bodies were of our ancestors, and imagining that future humanity would look at as us spiritually as equally as primitive, and he you know he believed that that the biosphere would be overlaid with what he called the noosphere, this realm of human energy and thought and innovation and invention. And in fact, you know, you know, the biosphere is now overlaid with this global brain we call the internet. Um, but we have such a long way to go to, to grow that up, um, to grow ourselves up. Um, but he, he believed that evolution um, proceeds towards spirit and I'm very, um, you know, I, I'm very drawn to an idea that uh, we are in the adolescence of our species, and 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 that that if you look at what's happening in the world today, if you look at the globe, it, it resembles the kind of image we can get now of the teenage brain, which is to say, you know, this unprecedented capacity for invention and creativity and technological advance 
uh, and you know, social entrepreneurship. Um, and at the very same time, it cohabits, it coexists, and and and, and inter- intertwines with with un, unprecedented capacities for for recklessness and destruction. Um, and so, you know, you so that's a hard place to be. Um, but but it also, uh, to me, is is a it, you know taking it taking it out of this um, short term thinking. It creates a spaciousness to you know. It, it, there's something relaxing about acknowledging that we are in the midst of a long-term project, and that we that we you know we're too quick to to call something a failure. Um, that this is work. This work of growing ourselves up, of spiritual evolution, is the work of generations, and we we do our part, right? But we won't solve the problem. But we are seeding. We are seeding the future, and we're doing the best we can with our particular lives. And that is good, and it's enough. You know, I think that idea of seeing change as a long-term project also requires a certain kind of humility, a word that you used previously in our conversation about working at the margins with humility. And that's not attractive to a lot of people. You know, this is my time. This is my generation. We're going to, you know, completely overhaul X, Y, (laughs) Z. Right. Yeah. And... It's okay. I mean, we just we have to hold these things in a creative tension, right? I think that sense of urgency is good, um, but we know from previous generations um, that you know there's hubris. There's a hubris in thinking, not just thinking we have to do our part. We're going to change things, but we're going to solve the problems. Um, I mean, look at the core. The core Buddhist insight is that. Uh, that everything is ephemeral, and that includes all of our best solutions. <laughs> um, and that's not the same thing as saying that there can't be genuine growth. You know, there can't be genuine leaps forward. There can, but we we have to work with this kind of strange um, stuff that we are. Um, there's still, and and when we don't. Um, when we when we get too attached to our grand solutions, um, you know, ultimately in the long run, uh, that just leads to to disappointment and to cynicism. Now you mentioned this teaching from Tilhar de Chardin: evolution proceeds towards spirit. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure uh, what that means. Well, just that. Just that the the story, um, certainly in his time, that was being told about evolution was it's all a it's a physical story, right? It's our bodies. It's that we got big brains and we stood upright and we made tools. <laughs> um, and his his belief was that it's more than that. That 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 humanity evolving means the evolution of of all of us. Um, all, all of our, all of our parts, all of our aspects, and I, you know, I think many of us, um, in many different ways, believe that uh, that our spiritual potentials are the the pinnacle of what, what we're capable. Um, 
and and so you know he, he you know he he believed that it would it would it would involve all of us and that we would evolve spiritually as well as physically now one other thing you said i found curious that you have this sense that we're in our adolescence as a human species and as you said that, I thought, I don't know. I mean, maybe we're in kindergarten, maybe we're in preschool. Yeah, well, I don't yeah. really know what <laughs> I, time scale. I may scale. have been overly positive about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hard to know. But what we're not is we're not all fully formed. Right? That's for and sure. I, you know, but but it's it's important to say because I actually think that we got to the end of the 20th century and there were actually people writing articles with titles like the end of history that people took seriously, right? You know, this you know physicists were sure that we just there was just one other thing we had to figure out and then we'd have it cracked and we thought liberal democracy and capitalism is the recipe for human happiness and 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 it turned it you know and it was we were we weren't anywhere near finished and and now we're we're grappling with the failure of of institutions like schools and prisons and hospitals that don't make sense the way they were set up to honor the fullness of human experience or dignity um that seemed like the you know the great solution so so yeah it's important that we say um we're not done we have a long way to go and and those were early efforts, and we can improve on them. Mm-hmm. Okay, Krista, there's a couple other things that I really want to talk to you about. From your book, Becoming Wise, there's a section in the book where you talk about the body, flesh, somatic intelligence. And you say, as much as anything I've done as an adult, yoga has saved my life. <laughs> And I thought to me, well, first of all, what was going on in Krista's life that she needed her life to be saved? <laughs> and then secondly, how did yoga do it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I was so tired of the thoughts in my head. I was so sick of hearing my my own voice. I, I you know, I was very... I, I talk, I talk, I write in the book about my sense of how cerebral... Um, a lot of Western culture is, including Western religion, including in a strange way, the the very con- um, conservative, immersive Christianity I grew up in, a kind of, you know, the body is an entry point of danger. And it's all about rules and beliefs and texts. And, and that was me, you know, and then I went to Germany, I was involved in, uh, you know, geopolitics, it's all very big, grand ideas and exhilarating, thrilling. But and then I started this show, which was about conversation and and ideas. And uh, I did hit this point where I, you know, I was not I was not complete enough. And I I actually now I I believe actually that our capacity to even inhabit or apprehend something like mystery is limited if we're not grounded in our bodies. Um, and fully grounded in our bodies and their in their beauty and their flaws, the reality of them. But and it was yoga that helped me, uh, you know, not not understand that so much as inhabit it, get out of my head and into my body. And that's a that's a spiritual move, you know. That's that's what I think now. That is a spiritual move. At what age were um, you when you discovered I yoga? Was in my early forties, no, mid forties. Mm-hmm. It was about five years. Yeah, forty. Well, maybe forty 
six forty seven. It's about five years into into creating the show, seven years, which I which I think of now as like the childhood, the infancy of the show, and then it kind of moved into, I don't know where we are now, maybe our adolescence or perhaps late teens. <laughs> and you approached it as a beginner and discovered how did it change. Your... Oh, that was also important. Yeah. yeah. But I'm curious that about that, I, and I'm curious how it changed yeah. your view, if you will, of how you know, listen, the sort of intellectualism, how yoga shifted that for you. Oh, well, it's hard, you know, it's hard, it's hard to talk about because it, it is so much at the, not. it's not a verbal thing. Um, it's not something I think through in that way. I, if I say that, that listening is about being present, it's also about being present with my body and in my body. And so I, I couldn't really like take apart for you how I'm different or what I do differently, but I know that my presence is fuller. And also when we inhabit our bodies in their fullness and when we're based in the reality of them, uh, there's a, it's a, it, we, we inhabit a vulnerability. Um, we know there's softness, um, that we are soft. Um, and so, and I, and I think that a sense, you know, knowing one's vulnerability, if you're safe is, is also a, a route to compassion. Um, so I, I am sure that in ways that are, that are, palpable i am i am more more open and vulnerable and compassionate um but yeah the the other thing you said was important to me too that i went into yoga i'm you know i'm like 47 um so you know i was in pretty good shape and all that but i i went in i started doing this kind of athletic this core power yoga um and it was clear to me you know from the very first class that i wasn't i i really thought i would never be good at this but but I was going to do it, right? I was going to do it because I could tell that it felt good and that it was good for me. And I think it was the first thing I had, the first thing that felt important or that was going to be a big part of my life that I had ever done, gone in saying, I'm not going to be good at this and that is not the point and that's okay. That was so freeing. This is this is all about personal personal neuroses and, you know, development. But 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 it's also a spiritual lesson. And and the truth is, at this point, uh, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years on, you know, I I am pretty, I'm good at it in a way I couldn't have thought then, because there's that thing again, you practice and you get better. Um, but even so, there's something so beautiful about yoga that no matter how, you know, that you're always, even in the same postures that you do three, four, five times a week, you discover you know, I, I make these little shifts and adjustments or do something I I didn't think I could do before. And that's all, and it's come through just patience and kind of, you know, kind of going over the same ground, kind of putting myself through those motions again and again. And all of that is, is, is I don't think that I have an especially spiritual practice of yoga, but it is such a spiritual teacher to me. In your mid-40s when you had this call, I'm going to go be a beginner in a yoga class. What were the symptoms, if you will, that something had to change for you? Yeah. How did you know that? Uh, Oh, I think I had just finished writing my first book. And as I say, I, I, I was sick of the thoughts in my head. And 
I do know that meditation is not about thinking. But at that point, you know, one thing I, I thought I would try and did try was to meditate, right, to calm my mind, to still my mind. But I, what happened for me is that it just, it just was another way of being with my mind, <laughs> because, right? And yeah. so yoga actually uh, just took that whole, that took that away because I had to focus, especially in those years, for years and years and years, I had to focus so intensely on what I was supposed to be doing with my hands and my feet, you know? And that was just such a relief to get out of my mind, out of my head. Okay, Krista, as I said, there are several things I still want to talk to you about. And one of them <laughs> is the section in the book, Becoming Wise, on faith. And in that section of the book, you talk both about the leap, if you will, that mystics make into mystery, and yeah. also how scientists have come in different ways to their discoveries and their own way in to mystery. And what I'd love to know is how the spiritual and the scientific come together in you, in you as a person. So I grew up in this conservative Christian um, environment where science was just not it was it was not part of the picture, and it was just a threat, essentially. And also, um, the life of the mind was not invited into spiritual life. It was also a threat. Um, so, when, so I was not at all religious and not at all interested in religion or spiritual life for a good 10 years. And then when I came back to this, I had to know... Uh, that I could that the life of the mind could have a really um, vigorous place in spiritual life, and so I, when I started the show, I, I, I had no idea if you had told me when I started the show that I would be interviewing physicists and neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists on a regular basis. That's not something I anticipated, and and those those conversations are so meaningful for me. They're so meaningful for for our listeners. Um, and I so and I think that there's an there's an element in that when you ask me what it means for me of just the there's just this sheer delight and just this exhilaration of of being of of finding the the creative interplay the conversation between uh, you know this place where ideas and inquiry and discovery um, material discovery. Um, are, are 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 so alive and you know often maybe most of the time these days when i talk to scientists they're not themselves religious people or they're not religious um or spiritual in any kind of traditional way but the discoveries they're making the insights they're gaining of what it means to be human of the cosmos of our place in it these things are spiritually evocative, they're theologically evocative, and that is just such an exciting place to sit and just to there's so much I get that I just chew on. 
And so it is in these in this realm of big ideas, but these are things I carry around with me. You know, I see the world differently. And that's one thing I often ask, you know, scientists, how do you walk through the world differently? You know, having seen, you know, being on this hunt for habit for life on other planets. And the answers they give, like knowing that other people live this way, that these are these are my fellow human beings, it just makes the world that much richer. And how would you answer the question, what is your faith at this point? Uh, um, well, I'm kind of fascinated about how the word God, I feel, is not just resilient, but making a comeback. Um, oh, my, virtue and God are making a comeback. You're making yeah. my morning here. But do you know do you know what I mean? And the word God is making a comeback in all these unexpected ways and places. In fact, you know, I have to say, uh, I interviewed Thich Nhat on, oh gosh, early, early on, ten or twelve years ago. And actually, we're going to put that show on the air again this week because I just feel like that's a voice people need to hear. Um, and but he talked to me about, you know, that he, you know, one of these things he says is he he can't imagine that the kingdom of God is a place free of suffering. And I remember just feeling like with him, I felt like, OK, sitting with him physically felt like the closest. I, it felt like sitting in the presence of God. And I'm sitting with somebody who's not a theist. And yet he's talking to me about God. So that's that's how I feel like this, this strange and fascinating and rich way that the language of God. But so so I love that. And I also I think for me, the word itself is just way, way, way too small for whatever we're talking about. It's the word we have. I feel like, though, we are filling it with all these connotations that include um, the particularities of our search for, you know, Whatever our search is for 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 God, as 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 humans have pursued that across the years, and I think that is evolving, um, and it's going to be as informed as much by physics and by Zen Buddhist monks as it is by you know Jesuit theologians. Um, so I take delight in that. I, you know, to be very honest with you, like lately. I've been realizing that I haven't had a practice of prayer for a long time, that I, I'd kind of, I've kind of felt like my work is my prayer. And I think it is, but that's not enough. So like my life of faith, whatever that means is, you know, it's, it's, it's a very fluid thing. And I, um, I, um, it has to do with God, but I do think that more and more, with God expansively understood, this sense that there's some, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to define it, but, um, but more and more, and 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 given the nature of this kind of accumulative conversation that I'm part of, um, I think the work we do on ourselves, the work we do to get clarity, to 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 be intentional, um, to care in the most practical ways, the imprint we make on the lives around us fitfully, you know, is this, you know, if, if that, that's, that's the first thing, whatever God is like that, like attending to that is, is the work. Um, that is holy work. Um, I would say just 
add it so there's that. There's this really reality-based, moment-to-moment understanding of the work of faith that I have. And then I do have this really... The other thing that the effect of my life of conversation has been to give me this, like the, the the sense I have of mystery, the reality of mystery, the richness of that, the vastness of that, um, that just grows and grows. And so I have less and less a need or desire to pin things down, you know, to to sum it up in any kind of word or belief. And yet, words and beliefs are have ultimate importance. So I kind of hold all those things in a, you know, in a dance. Now you said this very beautiful sentence: "My work is my prayer." What are you praying, or how are you praying? Do you think through your work? Um, I. Elie Wiesel died recently, and I went back to this conversation I had with him a long time ago also. And he, of course, is somebody who had a very fraught experience of prayer coming out of the Holocaust. And, you know, was prayer possible after the Holocaust? And he said, I was just revisiting this this week. He said, he said, well, you know, what makes words holy? And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, what, what makes, what, what turns words into a prayer? You know, when, when when it brings you closer to uh, the suffering of others, um, uh, you know, your, your words become a prayer. Um, I, so I think to the extent that, uh, that my work is an engagement with, with the humanity I share with others, with, with our longings and our questions and our, our aspirations um, to to be our deepest selves and our highest selves, that somehow that's a prayerful endeavor. But as I said, I I I don't think it's enough and I think I've I've realized that I I I still need that that contempl I need that contemplative time for my own inner um for my own anchoring. I actually do have a really I think kind of embarrassingly minor meditation practice <laughs> from the last couple of years, which has also been completely transformative. Um, I didn't even write about it because it's, I feel like it's so tiny, but, but I have, I have to do those things. So I'm just saying, I've realized I can't fall back on, well, I have all these great spiritual interviews and that's enough because it's not, I still have to be forming myself inside and I still have to keep um, getting grounded inside. Mm-hmm. Krista, I just have one final question for you, and it's kind of a curious question, but for whatever reason, it's what I'd really like to ask you, which is, I'm curious to know what generates a feeling of fulfillment for you. And I think I'm asking that because I see you as such a public servant, if you will. I really do. You give so much to help the collective move forward. And I'm curious to know what actually feels fulfilling to you. Well, wow, that is a, it's, um, I have never quite thought about it that way. So I'm just going to tell you what came to mind, right? I'm not going to, um, I. You're going to be vulnerable I, with me. <laughs> when, when I'm in a conversation, when I do, when I'm in one of my conversations, I, 
Um, you know, there's this thing that happens when you're writing that you 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 can put words around something you didn't even know you knew or you didn't even know you thought about it that way. And I think the same thing happens in a conversation and then it happens with another person. It happens. So there's something incredibly fulfilling and it's like holy ground. It's like a privilege when I'm with somebody and because of the, the back and forth of the conversation, they put words around something that they know and something that's really helpful for other people to hear in a way that they've never quite put words around it before. That's that to me. I mean, I guess that gets at my sense of the power of words and that somehow that, that just brings something new. And it's also a gift to them. Like there's, there's something transformative for any of us when we do that and to be present, to, to help be a catalyst for that, to witness that. And then to, and then to have the, all the people in the room who are eventually going to be in the room when they listen on the radio and I think the other side of that is um, when people say to me that because of, you know, being in this, in this listening room, that they, you know, that they weren't just able to hear that conversation, but that they were, that they were able to be present and listen differently and, um, you know, gather some curiosity and and through those things m- create some new possibilities in the world close to them um that that's just again just this amazingly like you know i get one story like that and i feel like okay you know this is you know all this is the metric i needed <laughs> to for this year to know that um you know we're doing the right thing and we should do it another year mm-hmm. yes keep going <laughs> this was this was really, these questions have made me think in a wonderful way. So thank you. Thank you, Krista Tippett, the host of On Being and also the author of a new book, a beautiful book, Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Krista, it's been great to talk to you. I feel incredibly inspired by the depth, really, of your commitment to care and to be forward in the way that you care and to bring that into your work. And even though you may say, you know, my work is my prayer, that's not enough. And for you, there may be more. I'm grateful that you've been praying through your work for all these years. I'm grateful for that, so thank you. Thank you so much. Soundstreet.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.